This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Last week, labor historian Joe Varga joined us here in the WFHB studios to talk about the state of labor relations and unions in the United States. As happens so often on this program, we spoke so long we had to make our conversation a two-parter. Varga is Associate Professor of Labor Studies at Indiana University and has written the book Hell's Kitchen and the Battle for Urban Space, a look back at class struggles and urban reform in New York City around the turn of the 20th century. So much of our history has to do with the tug of war between labor and management, and that contest continues today. Right now, several major strikes are underway, including the United Auto Workers, the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare Workers, and the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of TV and Radio Artists. Does all this activity signal a rebirth for unions? If anybody would know, Joe Varga would. If you missed last week's Part 1, go to WFHB.org for the audio podcast of that edition. Now, here's Part 2. Let's talk about Hell's Kitchen and the Battle for Urban Space. The years, 1894 to 1914, what what big thing happened? The what progressive era. That was definitely the progressive era. Uh, so what you had happening during that period and what I write about in this book was you had this group of people slowly taking over urban governance called the progressives. They said that, you know, laissez-faire is not working, hands-off government, small government is not working. We need an activist government to solve the problems of American cities. And this is right on the heels of the Gilded Age. Yes, on the heels of the Gilded Age, which we are experiencing a form of now. No kidding. Uh, where you have these incredible disparities of wealth. And most of the problems that were caused by urban populations kind of being forced into these small areas with poor housing stock and being underpaid in workplaces that were dangerous, where there were very few regulations about child labor, about, you know, factories and safety, all of that happening on the on the heels of the Gilded Age where the government was basically in the hands of a very few individuals and their corporations. So the pushback comes from what are called the progressives. And the progressives say, like, we can have a system where you have disparities of wealth, where you have the generation of enormous amounts of capital, but we need to control it. We need to have some sort of progressive government that passes regulations that govern these conditions and give workers decent housing, for instance. So the obsession in places like New York City becomes, can we provide the space for this burgeoning population of immigrants from Europe, mostly from Eastern Europe, yep. new immigration that's pouring into the country. So the area that I write about, the more kind of popular area at the time for attention is the Lower East Side. The Lower East Side's, you know, the immigrant communities, but actually the Middle West Side, Hell's Kitchen, as it becomes known, 
uh, is the most densely populated place in America at the time. You got the tenements, you've got hideous conditions. So one of the things I write about in the book that just is mind blowing to our common, you know, our, our sensibilities today is that probably the most crowded area in the city at the time was 11th Avenue between 34th Street and 54th Street, just packed with people in these tenements. And there's a rail line running right down the center of the street. And literally, kids are getting chopped in half. Oh. You know, there's a story about a kid bringing a lunch to his father who's working at one of the factories, and he's trying to run across the tracks, and he falls, and he gets cut in half, and he's holding the lunchbox. Oh. That he's, but it was hideous. It yeah. was horrible. Believe it or not, we have a return to things like, shouldn't we let more kids work? And we're, we're having <laughs> um, these investigative journalists who are doing a great job of exposing Things like the um, the chicken manufacturing uh, plants where they farm out the cleanup of their factories to third parties, and the third parties are hiring 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds wow. to clean up these factories, migrant kids, wow. kids who have no citizenship and have no rights. How do we go back to that? How do we? But anyway, what I write about in the book, and what I think the most important thing in the book, is there becomes this kind of obsession with let's provide these people with better housing, with better space, with parks and things like that. And the population itself, the working class population of the area, really becoming self-aware that, hey, if we play this role of poor workers, we'll get even more stuff. <laughs> and it's, it's a really interesting dynamic that develops. And that's really what the book is about. It's about working populations actually using their position as workers and using their kind of solidarity to get more services out of the city, out of city government by, by basically playing the role of, hey, we're poor workers. You need to, you need to give us something or we're going we're gonna to come for your stuff. With the current upswing in labor and unions, let's talk about some of the strikes that are going on right yeah. now. You've got United Auto Workers. You've got the Writers Guild of America who still has to ratify mm -hmm. the agreement. Green Actors Guild and American Federation of Television and Radio Artists are striking against game producers. Gamers, this is the latest thing, yeah. Culinary workers and bartenders in Las Vegas yep. have voted for a strike authorization. Right. 75,000 Coalition of Kaiser Permanente unions. That's a biggie. Healthcare workers. <laughs> yeah, healthcare workers, yeah. Last week we mentioned on this program with Joe Varga uh, all of those numbers regarding last year's the year 2022 work stoppages it went up it went up about 50 percent yeah. in terms of number of people going on strike is there optimism if you're on the side of labor yeah so i'm looking back at the short term both the long term and the short term history the short term history i think there are two events that are really structuring what we're seeing today. One was the, the Great Recession of 07 and 08, Ooh. and the other is the pandemic. I think 07 and 08 really created the conditions for the right-wing populism that we're seeing, where workers just started to see like, oh my, this, this system that we live in is completely unfair. Right. Here you have these wealthy bankers, they're robbing us blind, and they're going to get bailed out by the government. And no one's going and, to jail. And nobody's going to jail, exactly. So you have that, you have the lingering effects of that, that really made a lot of people very cynical. And then you have the pandemic. We're not going to know the full effects of it for years and years and years. But I think what the pandemic did 
was it caused a lot of people at varying levels of our economic system to say, why the hell do I do this? Why the <laughs> hell do I spend two and a half hours in my car every day going to a place where I spend nine hours making a profit for some persons that I never see yeah. and come back and home exhausted and I'm in debt and the only way I can maintain my lifestyle is by going into further debt. Why do we do this? And I think that that basic question, that's what I'm talking about with the great refusal, is that there is there was always this kind of tacit bargain in the American capitalist system. And that bargain was that a certain level of our society got to live a good middle-class lifestyle, yep. right? They got to go on vacation. They got to get a second car. They got to send their kids to Indiana University. They could buy homes. They could buy homes. The first home that I lived in, we bought that with my father's income from his factory job making diapers on a diaper machine. Uh, single and that income. doesn't stand and anymore. And that does not stand anymore. And I think a lot of people are calling that into question. And they're calling it into question looking back now at the longer term history and that longer term history is the one i was just talking about when my uh, parents bought that house in east brunswick new jersey in 19 excuse me 1962 on my father's income as a line worker on a diaper uh, factory in a diaper right. plant that was at the height of unionization and that was at the create the literal creation of the American middle class. My, my one partner and I were talking today about sitcoms from the 1960s. And we were talking about Bewitched and the Flintstones and how they all depicted American middle class lifestyle. Yeah. And I think the reason they did it is they weren't just reflecting something that was going on. They were teaching American people how to be middle class huh. because there had never been. There had never been a mass middle class like that before. It is unique in human history. The development of that prosperous American and European middle class that happens between the 1930s and the 1960s is, is something that's really new and is something that's pretty unique. And part of that was the rising wages and working conditions and democratic processes of American unions. You can go all the way back to Henry Ford, yeah. whose idea was the people who work for me yeah. ought to be yeah. able to make enough money to, to buy, buy my, my vehicles. Cars. Yeah, and that is a crucial thing. One of the things that we're seeing nowadays is when workers go on strike and when workers threaten to organize, you'll get a little bit of reactionary pushback that'll say, well, you know, the companies will just replace them with machines and AI. And it goes back to what Walter Ruther, I'm trying to remember which of the uh, car executives he said it to, but one of the car executives, Walter Ruther was the president of the UAW, the United Auto Workers. Yep. And he's taking them through one of their plants and he's saying, look at this, Walter, these machines are replacing all of your workers and they never ask for a break and they never ask for a raise and they never go on vacation. And Ruther looks at him and says, yeah, but they don't buy your cars either, do they? <laughs> <laughs> and it was his trump card. Now, Joe Varga, you're talking about a technology of a half century ago mm -hmm. or so that threatened labor. There's a new one. Yeah. There is artificial yeah, intelligence oh, absolutely. and some of the strikes that are going on now, like uh, Writers Guild of America, East mm -hmm. and West had been on strike. They're worried that yeah. artificial intelligence is going to replace them. What's yeah. going to happen? Um, so if I could put in a plug for the book that I'm working on, Please. I'm working on a book called Breaking the Heartland. Hopefully it'll be out next year. Look for it. It is about the deindustrialization 
of Southern Indiana. Uh-huh. And part of what I'm writing about is how things like the North American Free Trade Agreement really affect jobs in this area. And for Bloomington, all we got to do is look to the west side, RCA and Westinghouse and General Electric, all of those jobs. Huge companies, Ra- tens yeah. of thousands of yes. workers. Ross Perot's giant sucking sound. There go all yeah, the jobs. Yeah. But at the same time, New technologies probably do as much or maybe even more than the trade agreements to replace American workers and put them out of those kind of industrial factory jobs. It is a process, and it's a process that's been going on since the Industrial Revolution, and it continues today. It's still going to be going on. AI is going to be... You remember uh, Rumsfeld when he was talking about the war in Iraq, and he said there's the known unknowns, and, yep. then, and then there's the unknown unknowns. Yes. I think AI is the unknown unknown. Right. Like, there are things we can predict. AI is going to do this. AI is going to do that. But there are things like this, this level of technological change. There are things that are going to happen from it that we can't even predict today. But one of the things we do know. One of the things we do know is that those products that are going to be made, like Walter Ruther said 50 <laughs> years ago, somebody has to freaking buy them, yep. right? So, and, it, and it, if you have an entire group of workers who are the former industrial working class and they have no jobs and they have no access to these materials and they have no access to these consumer goods, they're either going to come and take them from you or you're going to have to find a way for them to work for them. Again, it's unpredictable what AI is going to do. But it's going to be a revolutionary force, but you're still like, here's the good question. Why hasn't every fast food restaurant in America replaced its workers with AIs? Because they're the freaking people that buy the fast food, the workers at these at these fast food places. So if you replace them all with machines, you would have an entire segment of the population that's either going to need government subsistence yep. or they're going to just come and take the stuff. Uh, going back to the specifics, though, AI is is the big category right now, and it certainly is among the Screen Actors Guild and the writers. Yep. And you can see it. You can see it happening where they're taking these composites of you know actors' movements and yeah. writers' words, and they're just feeding them into these AI machines, and the AI is spitting out what these people normally do for a living. Meat and grinders. Yeah, they're meat grinders. Yeah. No, and it's fascinating and it's terrifying at the same time. So... One of the things that we're seeing in the last couple of days is the contract that's potentially coming out of the Writers Guild of America, where they are getting some guarantee that their work is still going to be valued. It's still going to be the thing that produces our entertainment. And the guarantees are against the use of AI. And that was probably the most important thing in their strike. I think it's going to be the most important thing in the two sag after the current sag after strike and the one that's probably going to start in the gaming industry. So that, I mean, yeah, it's the most important issue that's going on today. Now, you're an associate professor of labor studies at a major university. Mm -hmm. I don't suppose you'll need a union. Or do you? Well, now, this is actually... Or am I putting you in a hot spot? Yeah, no, it's an embarrassing question, actually, for us in labor studies. We can form a union if we want to as faculty. We can even form a union. I'm actually in the School of Social Work. Uh, within the Department of Labor Studies, we can do whatever we want. We can call ourselves whatever we want. 
by state law in the state of Indiana, the institution of Indiana University is under no legal obligation to recognize us. Right. And that is the issue right now with the graduate students. Yes. Right now. This is the same issue that the graduate student workers are facing. They have formed a union. They have voted for the union. They have named their union. They have dues. They have officers. They have everything but re legal recognition. And Indiana University knows they have no compulsion. They are not legally compelled to recognize the union. If we were working at a private sector university, if, if Indiana University was a private institution and we voted to form a union or the graduate workers voted to form a union, they, the institution would be legally obligated to recognize them and bargain with them. Are you able to say that when the graduate students were really raising a ruckus last year. Are you able to say whether you supported them or not? Oh, I, I supported them wholeheartedly. In, <laughs> in fact, uh, the first meeting of the graduate workers to, uh, to going to form a union was in 2015. We met at the cozy table out on the west side with a bunch of them, and I was in that initial meeting. <laughs> I haven't been as involved. These guys have been great. They've been doing most of their own organizing. They've been working with the UE, which is a radical labor union, the United Electrical Workers. But yeah, I definitely supported them. And here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, we, they have, the, the institution has no legal obligation to recognize them. Right. There are still things you can do. And this goes back to probably the most controversial issue in American labor history is the National Labor Relations Act, believe it or not. Yep. Even though it's seen as the Magna Carta of American labor, uh, it creates this legal situation where... Uh, private corporations have to recognize a union if it votes in a union. But it also took away a lot of the radicalism of labor unions. Because uh -huh. before the National Labor Relations Act, workers really didn't have any legal protection. The only thing that they actually had was their own solidarity. So we, as faculty here at Indiana University, we could form a labor union and we could I, we could bring Indiana University to its knees if we had a solid labor union that got maybe 80% of the faculty signed up and we all acted at the same time, like we all went on strike yeah. at the same, we could bring the university to its knees. It's not going to happen. Why couldn't they, <laughs> why couldn't they just fire you and say, we're going to get a whole new gang of you? Well, see, then that becomes a different situation, right? Then that becomes, can we hold together? within our field and our uh, field is trained professionals who have the same degrees as we do right until those people um th the best example of this is even at, at a much different level that most people are would recognize the movie the grapes of wrath you remember the movie the grapes of wrath where they go from they're going to get three cents a bushel for the fruit that they're picking <laughs> to two cents and yeah. they walk out and the guys are coming in with their baskets saying we're going to take the two cents because our families are starving and the guys at the picket line are saying no, if you go in, we're all going to starve. Yeah. So we would have to make that argument right. to people in our field to say, like, look, if you go and cross our picket line, none of us are going to get good conditions. And that's a hard argument to make. And back in the old days, before the National Labor Relations Act, when those guys came across the picket line, you could stand there holding your signs and you could chant at them and you could try to reason with them and you can be rational. Or you could do what the railway workers did in 1913 in, in Indianapolis and you beat them over the head with pickaxes <laughs> you know, and say, you're not crossing our picket line. And if you cross our picket line, we're going to beat the hell out of you. Ooh. Now, it's hard to imagine... <laughs> college faculty doing that but you'd have to do you'd have to have solidarity joe what's going on with starbucks 
Well, one of the things that's happening right now, we've had this wave of interest in unions. We've had new organizing at places like Amazon. You had the threatened Teamster strike. You got the UAW strike. Starbucks workers have been organizing around the country. 340 stores. For several have, years. Have voted, yeah. And this never happened before. Starbucks closed stores when they had threats of unionization. Yeah. They would fire workers, blah, you know, the whole bit. But 340 brave sets of workers have voted to form unions. And the legal ramifications of that are that Starbucks Corporation has to, at some point, sit down with these workers and negotiate a contract. So far, the company is not doing that. Uh -huh. And so this has happened locally, the uh, store up on the bypass, uh, on College Mall Road in the bypass. They voted 14 nothing to organize a union in their store. They now become part of the 340-something stores that are demanding that the Starbucks Corporation sit down and negotiate with them. Starbucks is refusing. And the reason they are refusing is American labor law has been weakened to the point where Starbucks Corporation, it's they're probably going to get hit with a bunch of what are called UFS, unfair labor practices, yeah. ULPs. The fines that they're going to pay for these unfair labor practices, one of which is refusing to negotiate a first contract yeah. with your new union workers, are so minimal. They're what Howard, Howard, Howard Schultz or whatever pays for his dry cleaning in a week. Cost of doing business. Cost. It's just a cost of doing business. And this is what Amazon is doing as well. Uh, it does not cost these companies anything to do this. What we need to do to support these workers is support changes in labor laws that are currently in committees uh, supported mostly by Democrats that would increase the fines for unfair labor practices. But we also can do things like look at what the Starbucks Workers Union, go on the uh, internet, look up Starbucks Workers Union. They have their own webpage. Look at what they're asking us to do. They want people to picket stores with them. They want people to stop buying the products. One of the things that we're going to try to do over the next few months is we're going to try to get Starbucks kicked off of our campus because wow. they are refusing to negotiate with their workers. So there are things we can do if we're supporting these workers. And once again, listeners, if you're hearing banging, that's the way Joe talks. <laughs> he just doesn't use his mouth to say things. He uses his fist, his fingernails, Absolutely. everything banging on the table. Absolutely, because these workers deserve their union. They have voted for their union, and they deserve a contract. So. Joe Varga writes articles about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Joe Varga writes books about this stuff. Joe Varga talks about this stuff every day of the week. And here he is on this program and he's pounding on the table here. I'm sure you have heard it, <laughs> listeners, uh, the pounding that he's been doing here. He is worked up. You love this stuff. I do. I do. I, it's my passion. I am fortunate enough. Like I never thought I would be here. I dropped out of high school. My last grade completed was ninth grade. I was a oh. bit of a delinquent as, yeah, a, yeah, as a teenager. Yeah. My father was a factory worker. My mother was a secretary. And so I came from this background that said, you're not going to college. And I did not start going to college until I was in my 30s. Huh. Uh, the Teamsters actually helped pay for me to oh, go to community yeah. college. And I finally got a, a bachelor's degree at Rutgers University in the late 90s. Now and a member of the Big Ten. Now a member of the Big Ten. <laughs> go to, on the banks of the old Raritan um, <laughs> and got my PhD. Uh, I think I was 45 when I got my PhD. So I never expected to be here 
a lot of people have helped me along the way. I've gotten a lot of, you know, good breaks, but I've also worked my tail off. And now every day I get to do this thing that I love. I absolutely love this. This is my passion. This is my life. I have walked picket lines. I have been arrested. I have sat down in front of police lines and <laughs> I've actually done other things in front of police lines that, uh -oh. I, do want, that I do not want to talk about. But yeah, this is, this is what I do. So. Let's go back to when you were a little bit younger. You were driving a truck, as yeah. you say. Mm -hmm. Did you love that? I did. I, I have to say that I did. We had an interesting situation at this company. I was. It was a beer company. It was a beer distributor where we went in in the morning, and we were organized by the Teamsters. We had a really good contract. We had a really good local. And so the bosses basically left us alone. We, you know, we would go through and pick the routes for the day, and everybody would get their truck. And then you'd leave, and you'd go out and deliver the beer. And some, it was hard work. It was yeah. hard physical labor. But you were out there dealing with the public. You were out driving around. You were working with one of your You're buddies. You were moving your body. You were moving your body. We had a lot of laughs. And I thoroughly enjoyed enjoyed that job. In fact, one day I want to I want to write a book about that job <laughs> because there's so many stories that come from that. You saw that where all the best places were to eat. Absolutely. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and there was one place in particular that served the best steak in New Jersey. It was called Arthur's Steakhouse, North Brunswick, New Jersey. I was their keg delivery guy. Mm -hmm. So on Friday nights, my partner and I would go over to to Arthur's and we'd get free food. We'd get a free steak dinner because I was their keg guy. So now, your daddy-o, as you say, was a working-class guy, too. Yeah. Would he have been more proud of you if you had become a lifetime Teamster truck driver? Or would he be more proud of you for becoming a professor as you are? He would call me Big Shot. He'd say, what are you, <laughs> Big Shot, Big Shot? He would be very proud. He died, unfortunately, in 1987. Yeah. Uh, I was 24 when he passed away. Um, he would have been very proud of me being a worker. Yeah. Because he was a worker. Uh, he was always proud of his position as a line worker, and then he became a union steward, the whole bit. A very loyal worker who also hated cops at the same time. Loyal to the company, <laughs> hated cops, the whole bit. But if yeah, when it, it, he died long before I got my college degrees, but he would have been very proud of me, but he would have said, what are you, you're a big shot now, huh? You're using all the big words. Yeah. Smart guy. He's a smart, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're one of them smart guys. Yeah. Unfortunately, too, my dad, I know this for a fact, my dad would be crazy for somebody like Donald Trump. <laughs> As a working guy, he would just think, this guy is the greatest. Yeah. Because of, because of the direct speech yeah yeah that the kind of stuff that's very appealing speech. yep you and know, and the they way they said that about george wallace yep george wallace absolutely oh he loved he loved nixon yeah yeah <laughs> he was a union guy who loved nixon so <laughs> go go figure but yeah he would have been he would have definitely been proud of me getting my education um but he also would have been proud of me if i just stayed with the teamsters and was a you know shop steward like i was and a contract negotiator negotiator so now we're hoping to get the new book Maybe within about a year or two. I hope so. It takes a while <laughs> once you submit a manuscript, yeah. then they have to go over it with the right. fine Of course, it goes going. after reviewers. That will be that. Breaking the Heartland, and it deals with Midwest deindustrialization. Mm -hmm. You can also get, uh, I saw this on Amazon, for gosh sake, Joe. Uh, Hell's Kitchen and the Battle for Urban Space, released in 2014 by New York University Press. Interesting stuff about New York at mm -hmm. the turn of the previous yep. century. Our guest has been 
Indiana University Associate Professor of Labor Studies, Joe Varga, a man who loves his work. Well, this was fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Don't forget, donate to WFHB. They're one of the few media outlets that we have that are telling the truth, that tell the truth all the time, that work with the local community, and they have guys like Mike who do this show. So please support WFHB. WFHB.